This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 178 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I'm going to keep my introduction very brief for this one because there's really not a whole lot else to say. This is part two of my recent conversation with Brett Finot of the School Sucks podcast about my experiences as a teacher in community college for about 12 years and some of the negative trends that I've seen both at the institutional level and at the level of characteristics of the students. And this is the part of the conversation in which we get more into the latter topic and talk a lot about some of the negative trends amongst young people these days. This was also broadcast as School Sucks episode, I believe, 602 on Brett's feed. So if you've already listened to it, there's nothing new here. You don't have to listen to it again unless you really want to because you liked it so much. But if you're not someone who's already listened to the School Sucks version, definitely you'll want to check this out. And if you've not listened to part one, check that out first. So before I throw you over to the second half of our conversation, I just want to say again, big thanks to Brett for inviting me on to talk about this and having it end up being a crossover couple of episodes. And also, I want to say that I'm leaving, I'm putting my intro on this episode. But I'm going to leave Brett's outro on the end of this because he makes an announcement about something that I'm going to be involved with, a project that he's going to be rolling out soon, and I'm going to be one of the contributors to it. So stay tuned at the end, through the end of our conversation, to hear what Brett has to say about this cool new thing he's doing, of which I'm going to be a part. All right, so here we go. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
voluntary in a sense, in a formal, like legalistic sense for students to go to college or not. And it's even voluntary, like which college they choose to go to out of whatever it is they're able to get into. But then, you know, day to day, they act like it's involuntary a lot of the time. And to be fair, a lot of it's involuntary in terms of the specific classes that they have to take. Yeah, of course. Right. So. So, yeah, I mean, that's just a little bit of specificity on online education. We're talking about online college classes, and we're really focusing on community college classes where there might be, at least in the beginning, less student buy-in, not to mention numerous problems with uh, study habits or work ethic. And online education generally, very generally, sure, that's a great thing because people listening say, oh, online education, that's like School Sucks Podcast or Dangerous History. Ask Jordan Peterson what he thinks of online education. Jordan, did you like working at the University of Toronto or having your YouTube channel, which has been more lucrative for you, right? The answer is obvious. So we're talking about a very specific thing. And the last piece of that conversation, I think, is a very good transition into talking about some student issues. But before we move on, just to give some numbers, uh, are you familiar with something called the Hetchinger Report? Um, no, that's not ringing any bells for me. All right. It's like a journalist think tank where they do quantitative analyses of things happening at various levels of education, and then they write almost press releases about it and disseminate them to uh, their list of media partners was not impressive to me. It's like the Washington Post and, and, and CNN. But this is just a pretty neutral excerpt that has some some numbers in it that I thought were worth sharing. A study done at the University of California, Davis, found that community college students throughout California were 11% less likely to finish or pass a course if they opted to take the online version instead of the traditional face-to-face version of the same class. Whether online instruction is effective in community colleges is an important question. The sector... And this, this data is not brand new either, so these numbers are probably even higher today. The sector educates 45% of the nation's undergraduates and is under fire for low graduation rates. At first blush, it would seem that online courses where students can log in at their convenience and complete assignments at their own pace might be an ideal solution for community college students, many of whom are older and juggling jobs and parenting. Not surprisingly, community colleges have rapidly expanded their online course offerings in the past decade. In 2012, more than a quarter of community college students, they were taking some portion of their courses online, so it's probably considerably higher today. Hmm. I've never seen you know those stats, but that completely rings true with my anecdotal uh, perspective. Also, something that just just occurred to me, you know, what you were saying before, sort of the disclaimer that like online education is problematic in certain settings in certain certain institutional settings something that just occurred to me about that is that distinction that i know you often make and i do as well between schooling and education perhaps we should say that online schooling is problematic in a number of ways online education potentially could be wonderful oh there solved nice good thinking <laughs> yeah i just had a, a eureka moment so <laughs> i made i made sure to jot that down so i wouldn't forget to say that because i was like oh that's pretty smart i'm glad i thought that So we've talked about students a little bit along the way so far. You know, you mentioned to me that there's certainly exception and you have brilliant, capable students right now, probably a lot of people that you're excited about working with. But over the last decade, you've noticed some trends. So what are what would you say the most striking of those trends is? Okay, yeah, and 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 they're they're mostly not positive, right? And I know I run the risk of just sounding like a like a grumpy old man or a a cynical, burnt out teacher who's been doing it too long. But it's it's not just perception. I've got some actual like data, like like I don't I don't have, you know, percentages and stuff at my fingertips, but I mean just in terms of like what I've seen as far as patterns. And also I've got um not just me, but like talking to my coworkers 
um, especially the ones who've been doing this as long as me or, or a few of them even longer, that they've seen the same trends too. So it's not just, it's not just me. It's not just me becoming a, a grumpy, crotchety old man. No, and that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I don't like feeling the same way, but I do. And, right. you know, oftentimes it takes energy to muster empathy for like the David Hogue crowd. <laughs> you know what yep. I mean? And I didn't think that that's why I didn't think that would be a problem I'd be experiencing back in 2009 or 2010 or even earlier, like even in the midst of a lot of the frustration of doing this work and going in and out of schools in the last decade. I didn't think I would be in this place and, and feel a lot of this frustration and even sometimes antagonism towards young people. So when you spoke up about it, I definitely thought it was a worthwhile conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, on average, and I stress on average, students over the the decade plus that I've been doing this, and I've been for the last 12 years, I've been at the same school in the same town. So we're controlling as well as we can for like geographical location and socioeconomic status and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and, and most of the students are students who came through the same handful of high schools over that 12 years before getting to me. Right. So, you know, we're controlling as many of the variables as we can, I guess. And on average students over that time period in my observation have been increasingly less prepared and less competent to do well in college. Now on my Facebook comment that you mentioned when we first started talking, I said reverse Flynn effect. That was tongue in cheek. I'm not saying these people definitely have a lower IQ on average than the students I had before. I don't actually mean that literally, just in case anyone wants to, to think I meant that. I have no idea. Maybe their I average IQ is the same or whatever. I, I don't know. But just in terms of their overall ability to succeed in college, the average has gone down. They're on average less competent in just kind of the basic fundamental skills like college level reading and writing, obviously some of the most important ones for my class and sort of basic prerequisite knowledge. Like it helps if someone at least vaguely knows some of the basics of, of like history and, and the U S government and like knows that there's an executive branch and a legislative branch, like that'll make it a lot easier for them to then learn more of the specific things I'm saying. Right. Um, they're increasingly on average seem to be, based on their performance and based on on kind of my my interacting with them and what they tell me they seem to be more deficient in terms of their basic study skills like you know listening to someone explain something and taking notes on it or something like that or reading something that you're that you're assigned to read and like you know understanding it taking some notes on it and then asking questions if there's something you don't understand in there they have more problems in terms of their overall work ethic and attitude than they did when i started and they're more unrealistic in terms of their expectations of, of what it will take to pass through college courses. And just overall, in general, they seem to be less curious about things, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the students I had when I started here 12 years ago were all like awesome. It's not that they were all A students, that they were all innately curious about the world, that they were all brilliant, that they were all into history, that they all clearly had all the prerequisite skills and knowledge they were supposed to have. They didn't. But speaking in relative terms, there has been a, a continuous downhill slope in these sorts of things that I have observed, and I don't think I've in any way significantly increased my standards for grades and things during the time that I've been doing this, but I'm pretty consistently getting, over time, fewer A's and yeah. more F's and W's, which are withdrawals, than I used to in the early years. So that's why I say part of this is, is my perception, but it's also backed up by more or less, as far as, I, as I'm aware, keeping my standards even 
and the student performance is going down. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit just what you know, the broad strokes of the community college acceptance process? Community colleges or, or state colleges, at least in Florida, and I'm assuming it's probably the same in other states, there's not really admissions requirements the way there would be to um, a, a fancier college or university where like they're, they're looking at your GPA and your test scores and they're only allowed to accept a certain number of students and they're trying to, at least in theory, w- uh, whittle out the best students. Right. So um, we're what's called open access. And open access means that as long as you have a high school diploma or equivalent like a GED and you have some way to pay for your courses, which could include student loans or scholarships or whatever, we can't say no to you. Right. So basically the admissions process is, is, you know, it's, it's not the same competitive process that it would be going to a a big college or university. So you have all of higher education generally over the course of the last decade or two, casting a much wider net down into secondary education. By that, I mean, there's a lot of people who 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I mean, and this wasn't, this didn't even seem like an option for me 20 years ago, but there might have been other considerations, but the pressure has been turned up that this has to be the next step if you want to have any kind of career success. So it's certainly been a problem in regular higher education colleges and universities where students are showing up, and I've done research on this for, for previous shows, where higher education generally is accumulating like seven or eight billion additional dollars a year doing a remediation or they're spending, right? Or, you know, <laughs> taxpayers in a lot of cases are spending seven or eight billion dollars a year giving freshmen, maybe even sophomores in college, the remedial skills that they did not get in high school. So if you have a general admission policy, you're going to be hit with that even harder, right? At the at the state college level. Right. Yeah. And one change that I know of, one one specific concrete change that happened maybe four or five years ago in Florida for these sorts of colleges, the colleges used to be able to require certain students to do mandatory remediation. We we call those those courses developmental ed or dev ed courses, basically where like you're you're trying to get someone to be college ready in thing in basic fundamental skills like reading, writing, math, etc. And when I started teaching here, they were they were able to tell a student, look, based on and I and I don't I didn't work in this aspect of things, so I don't know the exact details of the criteria, but basically you know, some, some combination of like your test scores, your grades or whatever, it's pretty clear that you, that you're deficient in certain fundamental basic skills that you need to have any chance of, of passing college courses. Therefore, even though we're open and open access and we can't turn you down from coming here, we're able to say, you have to take these remedial things first, right? Before you can take your other stuff. And About four or five years ago, that was eliminated. Now, the courses still exist, but they're no longer able to. And this was a state directive, as far as I'm aware. They're no longer able to make them mandatory. So they can't tell a student who obviously doesn't have college-level reading, writing, or math skills, they can't tell a student, look, you have to take this remedial thing um, if you want to take other classes. Instead, they can do voluntary, right? But 
But who's going to take the voluntary courses that will waste the students' time and money, especially considering there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the more deficient a student is in skills, the more likely they are to not really understand the depth of the problem. Right, of course. And, and so, so who's going to take these? And, and I'm sure some people still do, but way less students are taking these remedial courses. And it's, it's noticeable. The change was noticeable when they made that change that you started getting very quickly more and more students who like, you, you look at, at how they were doing and the work they were producing and go like, I'm not sure if this person's really all that literate, you know? Right. And as a history teacher, like, what am I supposed to do with that? There's, there's realistically, there's nothing I can, I can do I'm, know, other than, other than give, give the person whatever, you know, horribly low grade they end up getting. I mean, I, I had a student pretty recently, I have essay questions on my exams and this student wrote some pretty long essays and uh, I'll hand it to him. He had decent like handwriting and okay grammar, but his essays, like he, he, he would write a, a page long essay that said nothing, that said nothing at all, that said nothing specific, that said nothing that was at all like related to anything we had covered in the course and, and nothing at all that had anything to do with answering the question that was asked. I have this person in my class a few hours a week to try to teach them some history. How's that going to work? It's, it's the equivalent of someone who really desperately wants to get on the basketball team going out for the basketball team, except he doesn't yet have down like being able to run without falling on his face. He doesn't yet have down like being able to throw a ball and catch a ball without dropping it everywhere. And yet he, and yet he's supposed to like jump into the basketball team and immediately begin learning advanced basketball skills and techniques when he doesn't have the most basic foundational, you know, running and throwing a ball down pat first which is just going to increase frustration and sensitivity to failure and yeah. probably lead to I, I mean it's counterproductive you know i'd like to think that especially in an institution like that there'd be an understanding where it, it, we, we could even break away from terms like mandatory and voluntary as far as these classes are concerned just in talking about what would be ideal is that a student comes in there must be some assessment where, even if it's just looking at high school transcripts or lack thereof depending on the situation and creating a picture of like what is going to be the most likely path to success going forward and set up prerequisites. If these remedial classes are required, then they're just prerequisites to get to you. Like I, I'm surprised that it, it can't be customized like that. Do you know any reason why or, or what the rationale was behind the law change a few years ago? Just budget cutting? Yeah, my suspicion is that's what it was because – this this was um, during Rick Scott's tenure as governor and very, very, very fiscally conservative. And in particular, he was is very fiscally conservative in regard to education. And in particular, he seemed to have like a particular uh, a dislike of, of the sort of college that I work at. Like he was less less harsh and stingy in regard to K through 12 and the big universities. But like we were kind of, you know, got the short end of the stick on, on a lot of things. And so that's my recollection was that basically it was him and then some folks maybe in the legislature who were that sort as well. And it's not just that they wanted to save, save like state taxpayer dollars. It's also an effort to save students tuition money, which on the one hand, you might go like, well, that seems laudable that you would want to try to try to hold down price and, and, and tuition costs and whatever for students. And, and the, the big thing at the end of the day is that's politically popular, right? You want to be the governor who says, not only did I save the, the, the treasury, you know, the taxpayer, these dollars, but I also dropped student tuition uh, for, right. for all these people. Isn't that nice? But if you're doing it in such a way, 
it eliminates a lot of the resources for the people who really need help to have any prayer of making it through successfully in the long run in the big picture, you're not really doing something positive. You're basically just causing more people to fail. Right. Uh, you're, you're causing more teachers to be frustrated and you're ultimately causing um, people to rack up student debt that they don't even get a degree for. Exactly. In the, in the long run, that's worse. So it's like a fiscal responsibility performance that ultimately just transfers the costs to the students who get nothing. In exchange. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the banks end up, you know, getting their cut no matter what. Exactly. Exactly. The final piece of this that I think is really important, you mentioned early on in the conversation, the generational consideration, right? You're teaching students who were born (laughs) this century, right? When you started, you're teaching people who were very, very close to your own age. Uh, We mentioned also that these are people who've grown up always having, you know, online access, always having smartphones from the time they wanted to use a handheld device. One was not counting Game Boys. One was available for them. So this has been uh, produced like I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but almost an entirely new species. If you look at some of the uh, quantitative behavior studies that have focused on, on this generation, have you? There was a, an article that was circulating around called "The Zombification of America Accelerates." It was on Zero Hedge, but it was based on a Pew study of uh, teen online behavior. And one of the interesting pieces in it, one of the questions, how do you feel social media has impacted you? Again, maybe a, a Dunning Kruger problem. Thirty-one percent said it's a mostly positive impact. And they gave reasons like it allows me to connect with friends and family. It's easier to find news and information, which in itself is kind of a scary one and possibly easily transferable to negative. Uh, Meeting other people with similar interests keeps you entertained. One of the ones that I was really excited about a decade ago was means of self-expression. A kid who just had to sit there in quiet frustration in 2007 could be a YouTube star in 2010, certainly today. 25% said social media had been a mostly negative experience. This is also being asked of a generation that also, according to this Pew study, is online almost constantly, right? So 31%, about a third, regard it as a mostly positive experience. About a quarter, regard it as a mostly negative experience. Almost half, 45%, say it's neutral. It's neither positive or negative, which I actually think is uh, a little bit scary. They don't know anything else. This is the water that they swim in as fish, and this is how life is. So it's almost not even something they've contemplated affecting their lives. Yeah, it's sad that a quarter of of this generation, at least referencing the survey, say that it's negative. Um, I'm not excited about the 31% who think it's positive because, you know, very, very small percentage of them, like, you know, 7% of the 31% say self-expression is a benefit. 5% of that 31% say getting support from others uh, has been a benefit. 4% of that 31% say they use it to learn new things. (laughs) So I'm not even excited about the positives here. But again, what's really kind of scary is how many have never even considered the impact that it's having on their lives. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, people of the generation of you and I, and even the people 
I was teaching when I started. Because when I started, basically, I'm teaching students born like around 89, 90. And so even then, like by the time they got to me, yeah, they probably had, you know, one of the early smartphones and they probably spent a lot of time online, whatever. But they hadn't been conditioned to it from the cradle. And they still had done some of their mental development when that stuff wasn't really around. And so they still also had a sense of like what it was like to not have that stuff. Now, I'm not saying that all of them would have the self-discipline, but at least some of them would have had the self-discipline to kind of understand when they're spending too much time on those things and when it's negatively impacting them and their learning. And, and you know, I'm, I'm basically of the opinion that if you don't have some self-discipline with things like um, the online world and, and social media and all that, that basically, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of potential negative um, impacts on you as an individual of being way too involved with that stuff all the time. But, but one of them is I think it gives basically gives ADD to people who otherwise would not have ADD. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one related impact would be the ability to delay gratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and just in general, the ability to focus and, and I've experienced it myself and I, I grew up without all this stuff. You know, I grew up in the, in the eighties and nineties, I, I didn't even get social media until pretty recently. I, I had zero social media whatsoever until 2014. And I only started doing that because I started a podcast and I was like, well, I, I better have a Twitter for it. You know, right. um, honestly, if I, if I didn't do a podcast, I probably would have no social media whatsoever. And, and even for me, someone who knows it can be a potential problem and all that still, I catch myself sometimes being, you know, ha having some addictive behaviors, and 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 having it be a time sink, you know, where I'm not doing productive things. I'm just, you know, bumming around on social media or YouTube or whatever. And and that's with someone who grew up without it and who is somewhat self-aware that this is a potential a potential problem. Amen. I feel exactly the and, same way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm and honestly I'm I'm proud of the progress I've made recently of of spending more time like, you know, turning it off, putting it away and and doing what I used to do. Like just focusing on something like, and I'm not even just talking about meditation, although I do do that, but, but like just sitting and reading a book and just sitting and reading a book, you know, yeah. or just sitting and thinking about something and just doing that, or just sitting and writing something and just doing that. And at most, maybe I have a little music on the background, but that's it, you know, um, and, and how valuable that time is, not just in terms of, of for my learning and my knowledge and my mental development, but for my, my mental health, my sense of relaxation, my sense of clarity, uh, developing that ability to simultaneously feel relaxed and peaceful and yet energetic. And I think of, you know, times when I sort of fall off the wagon, so to speak, spend too much time online, not enough time doing other things and how that makes me feel. I mean, it doesn't make me feel good. It mm -hmm. makes me feel anxious and, and nervous and it makes me feel stressed. And it's preventing me from, from learning things I'd rather be learning and from acquiring skills I'd rather be acquiring and all that sort of stuff. And I look at these these people who now I'm getting people who were born in 2000, 2001, you know, maybe even the occasional dual, dual enrollment student right now who was born in 03 or 02. On the one hand, like it's frustrating as a teacher to have to deal with someone who's, whose mind has been morphed in that way. And on the other hand, I feel sorry for them because, you know, to some extent, it's not their fault. They were just sort of like dropped into that situation. And, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of blame we could place on their parents as far as like their parents maybe just allowed iPads and iPhones to raise their kid and were asleep at the wheel as far as that goes. Absolutely. 
Right. And, and, I, and I can tell which students I have that probably had parents who monitored that stuff and didn't let their kid, you know, spend too much time on that because they're the ones that still have an attention span. They're the ones that still have the ability to focus on something, all that stuff. I myself, like in, in, in most ways, am more or less kind of a peaceful parent. But at the same time, like I, I also do some, you know, put some limits on my own kids and how much time I let them spend on that stuff. And I, I think it's working because both of my kids would rather like go for a hike in the woods than be on their phone or go fishing than, than be on their phone or go sit in the backyard when the weather's comfortable here, um, sit under a tree in a chair and read a book for an hour. And I, and I think that's just better for a human being to spend more of their time with those sorts of things than with this online world. I, I think it's causing people to be intellectually stunted who otherwise might have a lot more potential capability. Uh, absolutely. I think from a philosophy of liberty point of view, too, this is like a really important issue of freedom, right? Dependence is not freedom. Yeah. The inability to sit quietly with your own mind, right? Like not being able to do that and having to go running for something to take you away from that silence and whatever your own head generates to fill that silence, not even having freedom from your own mind, that doesn't scale to many other kinds of freedom. I've had those realizations in my own life, looking at my own dependence with these things. Again, you know, I was born in the 70s, for goodness sake. And I went through my entire, you know, it's interesting because we're both about the same age. But I was looking at uh, The Atlantic published this study about the smartphone generation. And the only, they put this tick line. So it's like um, things that are positive helpful, healthy qualities of human beings, like dropping off with 12th graders, 10th graders, and 8th graders. It runs from the, about the time I was born until 2015. And the only tick line they put to, to like mark off a, a milestone is 2007, when the iPhone was released. And upon the release of the iPhone, everything just like J-curves, <laughs> J-curves down. But you start to see, in most of these cases, declines around the year 1990. And I think to myself, I was alive in 1990. What was happening then? I mean, that was when I got Nintendo, Game Boy, and then like every year or two, there was a better system that, that came out. So looking at things like kids not hanging out with friends from mm-hmm. the time I was born uh, until a couple years ago, that for most high schoolers fell off more than a third, like 33% down. 12th graders who can drive. Uh, When I was born, 85%. That's down below 75%. And it's like, they're not in any rush. Could you imagine a more important thing to a 16-year-old than getting your license and having that freedom? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me and everybody I knew, it was like the most important thing in the world. Like you didn't want to wait more than a day than you had to, to get that thing and, and have that freedom. I mean, because, you know, kind of like the tail end of Gen X, I guess, we, we grew up with a fair amount of autonomy and we wanted more because we liked it. You know, right. I mean, I, I grew up pretty Huck Finn down in South Florida, like me and my friends, we were we were always just roaming the county on on bikes or on boats because I was in a place where there were lots of interconnected lakes and canals. Mm-hmm. And, and we would like jump in. I'm talking I'm like, you know, maybe nine years old and my my older brother is like maybe 13 and and we would jump in a in a John boat that he bought, you know, from the classified ads and like fixed up with an engine that he built because he's a mechanical genius. I'm not. 
um, from like spare parts of a couple of different boat engines. And we would jump in this thing and like literally cover the whole county oh, yeah. um, with, with no supervision. Basically, my parents were like, yeah, try to be back by the time it gets dark. And that was starting to become an anachronism, I think, even even at the time. But it's really an anachronism now. Oh, I mean, I, gosh, I remember before we were able to drive that impulse, that need to get out and be free. I, I mean, this was kind of like I grew up unsupervised and then got really, really supervised once the, the kidnapped generation was upon us. But being 15 years old and feeling like an adult, like me and my friends, before any of us could drive, we would go on like deliverance style canoe trips through the well not like full deliverance style but like deliverance deliverance <laughs> yeah. in that it was a river and a canoe but that's as far as it went um, yeah 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 no, maybe no, there's better no movie rapes examples. or murders right right <laughs> right and we would get lost in the woods and wind up in innavigable parts of the river so that was how bad we wanted to get out so when we were able to just do that semi safely on the road in a car oh my god it was huge but yeah you know I remember one of the reasons why I wanted to have a car so I could go on dates, so I could turn those dates into sex. And those have also J-curved down as well during this time. The only J-curve up, unfortunately, is loneliness. Makes perfect sense given yeah. all the other trends. Yeah, exactly. But in an age of super interconnectedness, that's uh, at first glance maybe a curious side effect. But right, with everything else that we've laid out, it makes perfect sense. I haven't taken a new student uh, for tutoring since 2014. I feel like a lot's even changed has changed since then. You know, yeah, it's it's probably a good thing for kind of your mental health and sanity that you're not, because I'd I'd imagine that you'd you'd probably have some similar sorts of feelings about what these people are are like to what I'm experiencing, and you know, I, I try not to be pessimistic all the time i try not to always sound like the stereotypical grumpy old man saying kids these days and all that and and they're the exceptions to all these all these negative trends and that sort of thing and they're still there and i and i try to focus on those sorts of students to kind of make myself not be too pessimistic or negative on things but it just seems like those sorts of students who are really with it and and really you know bright and all that the the percentage of them is is has been falling off continuously during the time i've been teaching and um, I actually I, I've got a a guy um, who used to be a, a friend of mine at the college, but he he took another job and moved far away, and I've been out of touch with him. But a coworker of mine who taught um, sort of like marine biology type stuff and whatever. And interestingly, he was he was uh, one of the few coworkers I have who was actually a, a libertarian. In a conversation I had with him, he got hired around the same time I did, mm. maybe a few years after we got hired. I had a conversation with him and he said he described his approach to teaching as educational Calvinism. And what he said was like, I'm not trying to save all the students. I'm not trying to like, you know, really educate all the students because I know there's a certain percentage of the students who like you're just not going to reach for one reason or another. They're just never going to um, for one reason or another. They're never really going to learn what you're teaching them. They're never really going to succeed. And and that's OK that I'm I'm teaching to the elect. I'm teaching to the, you know. The ones in there who are really receptive to it. Mm -hmm. And and that always kind of stuck with me what he said. And that's sort of been my approach too. like, I don't dumb things down. I don't water things down. I don't lower my standards or whatever. Basically, the 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 students that are the really, really uh, bright ones. That's who I'm teaching to. 
Because if I try to teach to the lowest common denominator, then those are the people I'm throwing under the bus, the, the students that are, you know, the really bright, capable ones who are really getting something out of class. And if I, have, if I have to water things down and dumb things down to get to the people who probably, you know, aren't getting anything I'm saying regardless, right. then, then I'm, I, I don't know. That, that's just, um, you know, that's how I think about it, and that's my approach. But it definitely, like, gradually over time is getting more and more um, uh, frustrating for me it in was, that situation. It was my progression as well. Um, you know, when I first started to make my collage about school problems, uh, my desire back, I mean, this was, you know, 13 years ago, was like, somebody's got to fix this. Uh, by the time I started the show that had been refined to, this isn't going to be fixed, <laughs> you know? Right. And I, I wanted to end by saying that it is nice that you and I have both found ways, even you know, side projects from the original careers we started on, to focus on the exceptions, right? To, to really be able to connect with those people in meaningful ways. It's great if you can do it through your job. I like to think I was able to do it at certain times through my various jobs uh, in teaching and tutoring. But now we both have setups where people are coming to us voluntarily. And even encouraging us, you know, incentivizing us to produce more of this. And that that is really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like I said in the talk I gave at Harvard uh, last fall, I think it's, it's better for both sides, for the quote-unquote teacher and the quote-unquote learner. Because people are, I'm sure, who come to my podcast or come to your podcast, like it's obviously voluntary. No one is making them uh, do this. And they're learning more than a student in a traditional class sort of setting. And then on our side, like it's so much more satisfying to be able to be as creative as you want to be, to cover whatever subject you want to cover. I mean, there's, you know, people would probably get annoyed if like my next Dangerous History podcast episode, I'm talking about, I don't know, like weaving on a loom or something like that. But assuming I stay in the general neighborhood of interesting history stuff, like they love it. Yeah. And so they're getting more out of it. I'm getting more out of it in terms of satisfaction and positive feedback and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's a completely different, uh, it's a completely different paradigm. It's, it's the difference between online schooling versus online education. Absolutely. So that's the, the positive outlook here is, it's not quite cynical. I, cause I, I think it's, it's an important question to ask, and it was a question that was put to me uh, when I was on my tour at the end of 2017. I remember I was, I was in Denver, Colorado, and it was a listener's father <laughs> asked me this very, very uncomfortable question at the time. And I have been satisfied with this story. There is an elect, right? There is a very specific group of people that I am talking to, and through that, I'm making a positive difference. And I, I think that is true. But the, and, and I think you you feel the same way. So what this what this older man said to me, he's probably a little older than, you know, he might have been in his 70s. He and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, yeah, that's a nice story and that's cool. But what about the ninety nine point nine percent of people that you don't reach or that because the, the, the original phrasing of the question is like, well, what what about everything that is going on in public school? You know, how would you deal with that? And I said, I don't worry about that. You know, that's not my problem to solve, which is true. And it'd be impossible for me to take it on as as a problem to solve personally or even collectively with a group of, uh, you know, interested people from the outside. But the problem still exists. 
And I can't just dodge the whole issue by saying it's not my problem to solve. It's still an issue worth considering. And he said, so yeah, those 99.9 plus percent of people that you don't reach, they still grow up. They still go out there and vote. It's still going to overrun your 0.1%, minus 0.1%. The remnant. <laughs> exactly. Right? You, you read uh, that essay? Uh, that That is it. I want to say it's Albert J. Nock who wrote it. Yeah. Um, and I think the essay's actual title is Isaiah's Job. And he he refers to um, a story from the Old Testament with the, the prophet Isaiah, where basically the idea is that the prophet's job is to kind of say the truth regardless of popular, you know, trends and beliefs and whatever. And that when a prophet speaks truthfully, most of the mainstream of their society is going to not only not hear it, they're going to to hate it. They're going to react negatively against it. You know, you're wrong, you're crazy, whatever it is. But there's going to be a small percentage of people in that society who hear what the prophet says and they realize the truth in it. And they're going to respond to it. And basically that Isaiah's job is not to try to convince everybody of the truth. Isaiah's job is to speak to those who are actually receptive to the truth. Right. And that if if Isaiah tried to water down his message in order to reach everybody, he would end up watering down his message so much that he would no longer be, be speaking the truth. And the, the real remnant, the people who are really receptive to this, would actually not listen to him, not be grabbed by the message, whatever. So basically, the, the moral of the story is like, be radical and be honest to be truthful. Because, yeah, you're not going to reach everybody, but the people you're going to reach are going to be the people that not only are most reachable, but the people that are the ones that matter. Amen. So, yeah. Yeah. And the people who are most probably likely motivated and capable of making a difference. Yeah. And I mean, as far as, as oneself, um, in terms of like, yeah, all these people um, who are ending up with all these problems from, from their lack of true education and from their, their social media zombification and all this sort of thing. Like, yeah, they're out there in the world and some of them are going to be voting and, and pushing for policies and whatever. And, and none of us can actually stop that. But I look at it from like a survivalist mentality. In other words, like, what would you do if you were in the Roman Empire, just someone living in the Roman Empire? At the time, the Roman Empire was really collapsing. Mm. The notion that you could, as an individual, just average Roman citizen, like turn that around, that you could turn around the process of the Roman Empire collapsing. It's ridiculous. Like, first off, you're not the emperor anyway. Even if, even if you were the emperor, at that point, you probably couldn't do anything to really reverse the trend. And so you'd be wasting time and energy and so on by trying to think like, well, how can we turn this whole empire back around? And instead, the, the most productive thing for you would be to, to back the, the lens in to you and your kind of immediate circle of, of control and sort of say, all right, some of these negative trends, there's nothing I can do realistically against them. But what can I do to, as best I can, protect myself, insulate myself, you know, try to form a circle of, of uh, valiant uh, guerrilla resistors if necessary? Who knows? But, but kind of what, what can I do to just sort of protect myself the best I can? Because in some situations, that's the best you can do. And that's actually the most prudent thing to do. I totally agree with that. And I think the reason why I asked the question is when I think about what I do and I think about how I tried to blow off this question with it's not my problem, 
it wasn't the complex calculation it needed to be considering what I do. Because all of those pressures or frustrations, all just, just events and trends, whether they're political, economic, cultural, that are happening out there in the world are bearing down on my mind and the minds of the people actively receiving this message. So what happens external to School Sucks Project or Dangerous History or you name whatever community that has you know a, a tribe and a language and a culture a around it, all of that stuff that exists outside it, it's going to shift people's attention. It's going to change people's priorities over time. You know, it's frustrating to put out a show the week of the Covington or the week of uh, or the month of Jesse Smollett. I know there's uh, some cynicism here, but it's not a good week to get people to listen to this, even though I know there's plenty of people out there that do think that this is more valuable or it's more what they want right now than that. They get that. That's just sort of noise and repetitive. But it's still it's ex external pressure. You know what I mean? And it, and it needs to be a consideration. So even though I want to continue to speak to those people and I don't focus a lot on what's happening in this world. I don't chase current events. I don't react to current events. I know that's a tremendously successful business model, but I'd rather just keep chipping away at solutions. But but that conversation is affected by what's happening outside of it. So that's something that I think I need to consider. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to pretend that the... Uh that the the huns or whoever aren't out there right um i mean you, you can't you can't turn the empire around but you at least need to know like if you need to get out of dodge or whatever it might be right yeah so that's a, an exploration i think for another time i just wanted to throw that out there and see what you thought thank you for coming on the show today and sharing everything that you did we now know a lot more about community college. I don't think we've ever done a show specifically about state or community college before. So thank you for all of the wisdom. You're welcome. Uh, this is my pleasure. And, you know, I'm happy to, to come on anytime. I've been a listener to School Sucks, probably not since the beginning, but maybe since like 2012, 2013, whatever. So uh, it's it's immensely satisfying to be a guest. Awesome. Well, I actually have a new opportunity coming for you in the very near future that we're going to be talking about soon. And hopefully I'll be announcing shortly after that uh, related to some some new endeavors that I have coming up this spring. You were one of the first people that I thought of to bring into this project. More yeah, soon. yeah, I know what you're talking about. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, CJ. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All righty. You're welcome. Have a good one. All right. I will cut it there. That Wow. Two hours. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking around till the very end of the show here. Very pleased to announce that Professor CJ will be one of the presenters at the very first School Sucks Summit. The first one is definitely happening in April. I'm working right now to get specific dates, but I have decided on a topic for a presentation. I am currently outlining that topic and putting together a very exciting list of presenters, including Professor CJ. So if this is the first time you're hearing about it, uh, the virtual summits are a combination of a course and an event. Each summit will be online, entirely online, will run for two or three days, bringing together probably in this case 12 people based on the outline I have so far to present on a very specific skill or knowledge area 
that is somewhere fits into the solutions that we present to the school problem here at School Sucks Project. So those solutions fall into three large categories. Number one, personal development. Uh, number two, alternative education or real world education. And of course, number three, critical thinking and learning. So I've been hungry for for that kind of experience to have more interaction with uh, the SSP audience. Once these virtual seminars complete, they'll be collected into a product library that will eventually grow this year, next year, and the following year to synthesize what I believe is our most valuable work. Uh, the style of these presentations, even though there will be you know, a social aspect to them, Q&A aspects to them, I want to cut away the fat of some of the stuff that we've talked about on the show before and really create opportunities for people to walk away with a new obviously valuable and immediately actionable skill or a series of skills that you can start implementing right away. About a month ago, I sent out an email explaining all of this and I got a ton of feedback. Uh, I was able to go through almost all of it. Five people in their responses mentioned the idea of research skills. Specifically, I think they used the phrase research skill. I had this all uh, on a spreadsheet. And then like another 10 people had some variant of that idea. And this wasn't even one of the ideas that I came up with. I generated a whole bunch of potential ideas for summits on topics, mostly in personal development and a few around home education. And then I started to get really excited about this. I started to think about the potential of this. Like, wouldn't it be great to talk to this person about how they take this huge body of knowledge and condense it into a really engaging 20-minute YouTube video. Fill in the blank with the person that you know who does that. I'm getting to that in a minute. But I came up with my own list of people I'd be super, super enthusiastic about having those conversations with. But because this idea was so prevalent in the email feedback, I added it to a poll on Facebook that had three choices. And both on Instagram and Facebook, this item pulled the best with the audience. So that's how we will begin. Developing effective research skills. So this will cover things like how to read a book by Mortimer Adler. That will be one of the presentations. How to evaluate your sources. Uh, synthesizing data, organizing notes, sequencing information. And like I said, uh, I'm putting together, I think a very impressive panel of people uh, to present at this summit. What I would like from you this is the only call to action at this point. If you have a content creator, media personality, a blogger that you really respect and you say that person is really competent when it comes to doing research, not, not just effectively, but efficiently, like somebody who's producing a lot of content, because this is one of the things that I actually want to get out of this first summit. I want to be better at what I do. I want to be able to work faster. I let a lot of things go just because... I don't have time. Obviously, the news cycle is turning over very, very quickly, and I don't have the time or I don't feel like I have the time. And maybe this is something that, that can actually change, but I don't feel like I can learn enough about that thing while it's at peak relevance to make it worth your time to listen to me talk about it. Now, there are lots of content creators and YouTubers who don't care about that, right? They have to produce content every day. And they know once they've kind of got you on the schedule 
Nothing against Paul Joseph Watson, but actually something against Paul Joseph Watson. There's people like that who have built an audience and they're just kind of feeding them the stuff they want every day. Like, you hate SJWs? I went to this SJW restaurant and the appetizers are making people gay. He knows what his audience wants and it's a pretty easy thing to deliver every day. But I'm also not going to say that he's a bad researcher. There are a lot of people who can work very quickly, and there is an impressive amount of depth in what they present on a very regular basis. I would like to be more like that. I would like to be more efficient and more effective. So, like I said, that's one of the things that I hope to get out of this. I put some of those names on a list, and I'm going to be reaching out to those people. So I start with the outline. Uh, what are the things that the summit would actually have to cover for people to become more proficient? And then I'm going to look at each one of those subtopics and go after the person that I think best fills that subtopic within reason, like based on people who are in my network or people that I think are attainable to present at something like this if I incentivize them properly. But I can't just make a list. And this is what I'm asking of you. I can't just make a list of 12 people, go get those 12 people, and that's all taken care of. So I would like one more round of feedback, and you can just email me, brett at schoolsucksproject.com, subject line summit, uh, include a name, and then if you don't mind, if you just don't mind, a sentence or two about why you'd like that person to present, what you'd like them to present on in this topic of developing effective research skills. And this is going to be happening in less than two months at this point. So the clock is ticking if you want to provide additional suggestions but that's the first virtual summit, Developing Effective Research Skills. I'm super excited about it. Obviously, have a lot invested in this personally and professionally because as you know, a person, and, and I think somebody talking to a lot of people who are pursuing individual liberty down a variety of different paths, right? Professionally, financially, in our relationships, some of us politically, many of us certainly educationally, being able to build these skills to work more effectively and thus more confidently it's something I'm excited about doing for myself, something I'm excited about leading other people through, and I look forward to your participation. So again, Brett at SchoolSucksProject.com, subject line summit, and then a very, just a very brief email about who you'd like to see involved. Thank you so much, everybody. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.